Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. We have very special guests. We have the mans with us. John David Mann is a friend and co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers and five national bestsellers. His classic parable, The Go-Giver, which is co-authored with my good friend Bob Berg, earned the 2017 Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for its contribution to positive global change. He is an expert writer, a good friend, and also he was born in New Jersey where I was born, but I got out of there and went, grew up in Maryland, but I do know this little tidbit. And his wife, I think is his wife. They're talking about marriage, so I would hope that it lasted from publication till now, but I'll leave that for a further discussion on a Gabriel man. And she has an MA in clinical psychology she also has an MA, but there's no bachelor's. That's a story I think we're interested in before going on to serve as an educator, a therapist, a corporate trainer, speaker, a coach. She currently coaches Go-Giver Marriage clients and leads the Go-Giver Marriage Coaches Training Program, training coaches from around the globe. John and Anna have dreamed. They have dreamed about writing the Go-Giver Marriage together for nearly two decades. So now the first thing we want to find out is, did the writing and publication of The Go-Giver Marriage, did the marriage survive in the few months since since this book has been published, or is it all over? What is, is <laughs> it's all a big sham, yes. There's oh. this big pause. Because they're both in different places right now from my screen, so I'm just curious. How is it? Are you still married? We are more married than ever. You know, uh, Skip, I, as you know, I published over 30 books, but this is the first time that we've written a book together. And we've done a lot of things together. I mean, we've been in business together. We've been consultants together. We've built a household and a family and a life together. But writing a book together, you know, people often ask us, did you fight a lot? No, we didn't fight a lot. We didn't fight at all. We had a wonderful time. And it's, it's just, it's better than ever. Now, those of us who've written a lot know that the answer isn't just, did you fight a lot? The question is, who took out the editing more often and just deleted everything the other person said? You know, there's a passive aggressive way to deal with this if you don't like what somebody's writing. So I don't know, Anna, was that really the weapon? Did you just delete each other's writings? I, I don't know. But today we are here to aim higher in relationships and aim higher in our marriages. So I do want to ask you about marriage, you know, when you put out a marriage book that's so bold, do you feel now, I don't know, more pressure now to have this perfect marriage now that you're the ones giving this marriage advice in this book? No. You know, we've actually had people for 25 years ask us what our special sauce is. So our marriage has been, you know, very, very happy, very, you know, compassionate, mutually beneficial. We're great companions. You know, it's always been that way. And believe it or not, the book did not raise any stress for us. We both went to our separate offices. John wrote the front of the book. I wrote the whole back of the book. And, you know, he wrote the parable, which he's gifted at writing parables. And I wrote the explanation of what it all means psychologically and how you can put it to work in your own relationship. And interestingly enough, there was very little editing back and forth. I mean, John was actually at times really moved by the things that I wrote simply because he was like, wow, this is much deeper than I realized. But I had spent my entire career 
as a family therapist. So there was that, you know, there was so much background. There was so much understanding. There is a lot there. And I would say, as I was reading it, I could see that shift. And I thought, it's clear to me he's written this and she's written that, but it's blended together so perfectly that in all seriousness, you can see the lessons and how it's weaved together with science and research and experience. I think that is what screams out as you read the book. The book's in a parable form, like my own book, The Book of Mistakes. And it's even similar because I have two stories in my book and there's two stories. I mean, you know, you like to make it extra hard because the parable isn't one parable. It's two parables at once. But I want to ask this because, you know, the focus of the go-giver and for those who don't know it, maybe we should just start with this. What What is the Pindar principle and uh, how does that work in relationships? Uh, that's such a to-the-heart question. And, and I want to start by saying that when we say that we have a blissful marriage and we've been happy for 25 years, it isn't like we just floated in on a cloud of bliss and rainbows and unicorns and have never faced any problems. I mean, we do live in the real world. And we've suffered through unspeakable tragedies and great hardships and had bumps in the road that were some major, some minor, just like everybody else. But we come to our marriage with what we call a spirit of generosity. And that really gets to the heart of your question. You know, the go-giver, the Pindar principle is simply this, that the more you give, the more you have. When you come to your relationships in business, in marriage, in life, from a spirit of generosity, looking out for the other person with a focus on the other person, it not only serves them, it serves you. You end up being more successful. You end up being happier. The relationship makes you more richly rewarded as well. You know, I used to say that one of the secrets to a successful marriage, my wife and I were married 30 years this year, was travel. It seems like one of yours may be separate offices. No, I'm just kidding. You know, it's that space between when you're together and when, when you're home. Well, the subtitle of the book is, I think it's Five Secrets to Lasting Love. The very first secret is appreciate. And this is what you say. Look for specific things about your partner you love. And when you notice them, take a moment to tell them. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about the appreciation exercises and how do you get started with that? Absolutely. Appreciation is so simple that people often overlook it. Um, But its polar opposite is criticism. And there's an epidemic of criticism in relationships across the world. There's an epidemic of criticism in marriages. It's so easy to say, you know, couldn't you just pick up your socks? I mean, come on. You know, there's so many little ways that you can kind of take your partner down a notch by criticizing them. It can be very passive aggressive. And yet when you appreciate somebody, you're not only building their esteem, but you're letting them know all the ways that you love them, all the ways that you appreciate the things that they do for you, all the ways you just see them. It's the ultimate skip in witnessing. And with being authentically witnessed, seen and heard and understood, that's one of the most basic drives that we have. It's based on a developmental stage called early narcissism which is in the first year of life when you're just a baby cooing on the blanket and some adult above you is telling you that you're the cutest baby that was ever born and they're tickling you, your belly and they're playing with you. You know, that's the moment when you're getting all of your sense of self off of the reflection from another. Now, when children don't get that need met, 
That's when you see people develop into class A narcissists when they're older, people who have a brutal sense of self. It's me, 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 I, 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 I. You know, that's their, their modus operandi. But when people do get nourished and fed and their basic narcissistic needs get, get nourished every day, there is a, a loyalty and a sense of love that develops and new memories come out of that kind of behavior. This is very much a cognitive behavioral approach, Skip. So when you change your thinking and you change your behavior, the outcome changes as well. I like that link between the appreciation and its opposite of criticism. And oftentimes, even how you criticize or what you criticize or when you criticize becomes a critical component in terms of whether or not you're really destroying that appreciation. So I like that. And your your link from the early narcissism days, which every baby has, to whether it can become, I guess, pathological or or something that we all we all see. The second one's attend and really paying attention. I think in the story, it's the cinnamon tea example that I remember. And it's been a while since I read the book, but you know, really paying attention to what somebody needs, what somebody loves, what they want, and giving them that. And what I like about that is it's about the other person. I think so often we attend to do things that we we would want, but not necessarily really listening to what they would want. And it can really be sort of a pull the opposite direction. Is is that part of this principle? Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely it is. In a sense, this, this attend idea is sort of an extension of appreciation in a way. The thing about appreciation is, is that it's something that we do when we're first in love automatically and fluidly. We're constantly telling our partner how amazing they are, this person we've discovered, right? But as life impinges and stresses come in, we have kids and a household and finances and jobs and illnesses and relatives with problems, and we tend to let those things slide. We stop telling our partner the things that we just kind of assume that they already know. My wife already knows how much I love her. My, my husband already knows how handsome I think he is. So we stop saying them. This thing with attend is, is the opposite of that. It's in order to attend to someone's needs, you have to investigate the person and truly get to know what is it that makes them happy? What is it that fulfills their daily simple needs? What is it that they love? Maybe, as you say, they don't like the same flavor of ice cream you do. Maybe they don't like the same movies you do. And that's okay. In fact, that's why you married them, because they're a different person. They're not you. <laughs> and so a 10 is like, there's a line in the book that says every person is an undiscovered continent. And a continent is a big thing. Every person has so much to learn about them. Attending to someone's every needs isn't just bringing flowers and bringing them a cup of coffee, as much as we love to bring our cup of coffee. It's learning all about that person and staying curious for decades on end. I was going to say the little things make a difference. My wife is so good at attending. Even, you know, and these principles are, you outline them for marriage, but it's for any relationship, as you can see. She's so good. If somebody stays over at our house, when they go to the guest room, framed pictures of them and their families are all around that room. It's just those little things to attend to thinking about them so that they feel comfortable. You know, when you tune to somebody else's channel and you're really paying attention to what it is they love, maybe you have a husband who really, really loves touch. And that's like kind of his thing. And maybe, you know, massaging his shoulders, making sure you touch his hand in the kitchen, 
hugging him, you know, giving him that extra sense of security that comes from touch. Whereas maybe she really wants to go for a walk every afternoon and she really wants to have that time together. And so both of you are paying attention in a way that you're making the space to attend to the, what it is that the other person's channel really tunes to. I like that and kind of obliquely references Gary Chapman's five love languages in, in the way that we're all tuned in a, a little differently. Allow is a good one that takes responsibility for the energy. I, I like that the energy It's one that I, I was reading and I thought, oh, I didn't expect that one to come up. Energy in the relationship. Talk a little bit about that. Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, we say later in the book that the, the in a marriage, there's really three people here. There's you and there's me. And then there's this thing we call the us, which is like a whole third entity. It's composed of pieces of you and me, but it's an overlap of the two. And it is a living, breathing, thriving entity of its own, like, a, like another organism. We picture it in the, in the parable as a tree living outside our house here. The tree has many surprises in store. But then again, so does a marriage. I mean, a marriage holds so many fruitful possibilities. You know, our belief is that a marriage, rather than being a thing that limits you and that causes you to have to compromise your desires and your wants and your lifestyle, because now that there's somebody else in the house, you have to pick up your socks and, you know, watch how you do this and that. No, 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 no. We say a marriage is an opening of doors. It's opening into a bigger space, bigger possibilities. You become a bigger person than you ever could have been alone. And so this thing of, of allow is making the space for the other person to be who they are, the way they are, as they are, and not trying to change them or control them to make yourself more comfortable. At all points, we're either feeding this us or we're starving this us. And one of the ways you feed it is by letting your partner be them, be themselves, and not trying to, to you know, stop them down. Really good about, about allow. What would you add to that? Also, what I would add is that family pathology rolls from generation to generation until someone has the courage to stand up and face the flames and change the pattern. And allow is also at the basis of codependent behaviors and the desire to control the other person. Its opposite is control. When you're allowing, you're allowing your partner to be who they are, the way they are. At the same time, it's not an opportunity to be a martyr or a doormat. You're not allowing abusive behavior. But because family pathology keeps rolling forward and it's hard to break these cycles, if you had a critical or abusive father, chances are you're either going to marry that person or you're going to be that person. And so allow is what we call the for better or for worse secret. And it's the worst. You know, it's the moments when the stress is up, something has horrific has happened, someone's lost a job, there's been a miscarriage, whatever, and you might have to pick up the slack because marriage is not fair. And because your material may suddenly rise up and come into the space and start to interact. And it's not about your partner. It's about you. So it's important to be able to have that growth and that intelligence, emotional intelligence, if you will, to be able to, to see it when it happens and to do something about it. Powerful self-reflection in that. And I like that. It could either you could marry it or it could be you. What a terrific warning. The fourth one's the one that I thought 
was to me, I was like, oh, that's where it should start. That's what I thought, you know, belief and trust and, and that kind of thing. Because to me, that's the foundation of everything in a way, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say the reason that that comes later in the game is that often in a relationship that does come a little later in the game. You have to get to know somebody before you genuinely believe in them and trust them. I mean, you may have that flash when you first meet, but still, this is something that develops over time. And where appreciation is letting the person know about the various things about them that you love, the facets, the attributes, the characteristics, and things that they do. Belief is letting them know about the core of who they are, that forget all the, all the, the eccentricities and the characteristics. At your core, no matter what happens, no matter what we go through, I believe in you. I'm on your team. I have your back. I am your biggest confidant. I am your biggest champion. I am like there for you. I'm the roots of your tree. That's what believe is really all about. And I, and I agree, Skip. I think it's, you know, it really is at the heart of a lasting relationship. Yeah, belief and trust is, is so powerful. The fifth one being grow and, and, of course, go build the cathedral. Go build your cathedral. And when you read the book, our listeners will know what that means. And I think it's so very important. But every day, you say, every day, identify what you need to be happy, healthy, and fulfilled. And, and here's the quote. The purpose of marriage is to give yourself fully to another and in the process become your best self. So the purpose is to give yourself completely to another and in the process become your best self. That is so powerful. That line, of course, is if you're reading along with the highlighter, you're not going to miss that one to really look at it in terms of the heart of what that is. And there's two sides to it, Skip. You know, people often want to attach themselves to the persona and or the success of their partner and sort of feed off of that. They want to get their needs met in the relationship instead of going out into the world and getting their needs met on their own. And often, you know, that's what we call merging in psychology circles, but it's really not a healthy pattern. You're two individuals. And yes, the third entity is the us. It's the part of you that the energy you bring to the relationship. But at the same time, if you don't grow yourself, and that could be just an avocation, we're not talking about going out and getting a career necessarily. You could be a master gardener, an amazing chef. You could be really skilled at all kinds of different avocations. But at the same time, it's that you let your natural curiosity guide you and you continue to grow personally. And that is what enables you 25 or 30 years later to have something to bring to the marriage as well. You know, we joke a lot about the couples that are sitting in side-by-side recliners with the TV going, and there's virtually no conversation between them. The TV is the conversation. And therefore, the relationship has stagnated, and that's the opposite of grow. It's that when you let yourself stagnate, you know, it happens to women sometimes who stay home for their whole career with the children. And then when the children leave the nest, they're kind of really lost. They don't know where they are, what's next for them, or how to move forward. So we really encourage people to stay aware of the things that you need to personally grow and to give yourself that. And it also embraces taking care of your health. Because if you're growing, you're paying attention to taking care of your health so that later on in your 50s or 60s, You're not the liability in the marriage who's got a significant health problem that takes down everybody. 
And I just want to acknowledge that there's, there is something paradoxical about this fifth secret. There's always something paradoxical about the fifth principle in every go-giver book. It's a pattern that we've, that we've glommed onto. And what's paradoxical here is it's what you said, Skip, in that quote. The purpose of marriage is to give yourself to another person and in the, in the process become your best self. So, yes, it's great to be devoted to the other person. You want to be devoted to the other person. You want to give attention and be generous to the other person. This is not at the expense of yourself. This has to be in service of yourself. It's like the sign on the airplane when they say, in the event of emergency, give yourself the oxygen mask first, then take care of your kids. That seems to fly in the face of reason, right? You want to rush to your kid's aid. But if you pass out, you're no good to your kids. (laughs) And if you hit the age of 50 or 60 and you're a walking mass of health problems because you've neglected yourself for 50 years, then you become a burden rather than a boon to your family. And for those of you listening who are 50 or 60, you should know that it is amazing that it doesn't matter when you start, you can turn that around and just a few simple things each day can make you feel like an asset and not that liability. So I I love the fact that it is never too late to start. Early on, I'd love to flip this around as I often do to... um, mistakes and things that could go wrong. What are some of the ways that you can set up your marriage to fail? Some of the big mistakes that you want to avoid when you're just starting out. If you were to give advice to the newly married, what would you say? I guess the first for me would be really examine your own childhood and your own parents and what you came from. You know, there's a phrase in psychology circles, we call it the starter marriage. People who marry in their 20s and the marriage is over by the time they're 30 or 32. You know, it lasts 10 or 12 years at the most and then everybody moves on. And that is often because when you get into your 20s, you're fresh out of college, if you even went to college, and you don't really know yourself. You know, that ability to gain wisdom about yourself happens as we mature. And so I often really want people to pay attention to what it was that happened to you when you were younger and kind of get a grip on some of those patterns. Because if you had an alcoholic father who was critical and you could never please him, that had an impact on you. And so when I'm coaching people, I will often ask them the question, am I speaking to your wise adult or is this a reflection of some place where you felt abused in the past. Because when we're in our wise adult, we're paying attention to the us. We realize that we care about this marriage and this other person, that we love them. And therefore, our rational mind is ruling. But in the event that our emotional material is just rising up, people are reactive. They are critical, controlling. You know, they can abandon and be neglectful. They will breach trust. All of the polar opposites of the secrets can come into play in a relationship, and those behaviors are really toxic, and they're deadly to relationships. How insightful. And I love that question. Am I speaking to the wise adult sage advice? Because I guess it just gives you an opportunity to reflect, where am I as I'm answering this, which can give you a third-party observation of yourself, I guess, in a way that makes it more difficult. Well put. What would you add to that? 
No, I think the, the honest point is fantastic, which is, you know, when I was in my 20s, honestly, I think I had a fairly sophisticated understanding of the world around me, but surprisingly little perspective on my interior landscape. If someone had given me great advice at that time, looking back at my 20-year-old self, I wouldn't have followed it. I wouldn't have listened because I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and I do think that, it, you know, just to add to what Anna said, we often counsel people to wait a little bit. Now, we do know people who got married at the age of 20 and they've been happy for 30 years. And those people typically had a pretty good sense of self-knowledge already by the age of 20. What is more commonly the case is we rush into marriage at 20, 21, 22, 25, and don't really understand that once we start living together, we're going to start seeing what Anna calls red flags in the field going up. So we counsel people to take some time. I know you really want to rush to the altar right now, but take a little extra time and give the relationship a chance to mature, to blossom, to grow. Anna and I were tremendous friends and business colleagues long before we became a bona fide romantic couple. And our lives together is still rooted in that, that core companionship that we had before we ever actually formally tied the matrimonial knot. Well, both of you give very wise advice and it's advice rooted in humility. So they may be humble, but I think it's an excellent, excellent book for you to give or read before you get married. So the reason he's saying wait before you just run down to the altar is because you have to sit down and read the book first. Read the book. It's a really, really good book in all seriousness. So just parting words that you would like to share with, maybe orient this toward a, a couple right now who you know, sees the tree kind of suffering. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about with the tree, you'll read the book and understand it, but they see that they're in a, in one of those dark spaces in their, in their relationship. And they want to, they want to get it back on track. Just like I said, you can get an exercise program back or diet back on track. Even if you're 50 or 60 or older, you can also get your marriage on track. What parting advice would you give to that struggling couple or someone who recognizes they're not in the best place? My parting advice would be this. There's only one person who can change your life, and that is you, and own that power. You are the only person who can change your life. And remember this, that you're also the person who can change your marriage. That when you behave generously, and when you practice the five secrets, the entire tone of your marriage changes, and it only takes one person in the marriage to change the entire tone of the interaction. And that's the power of what the book offers is that, and also, you know, we coach, I coach, you know, when I coach people, I don't coach the couple. I coach the individual because the individual is the one that has to gain that compassionate eye, that giving and loving heart, and has to actually take on cognitive differences and behavioral differences. Simple, simple things that you can employ every day that will change the tone of your marriage forever. And what I would add to that is, is, you know, is in that last sentence that Anna gave, every wonderful thing I've experienced in my life started out seeming absolutely impossible, like a mountain I could never climb. And, you know, a marriage can seem like that. And Skip, you put it so well. What if you, you have intractable health problems at the age of 50, 55? They can be turned so frequently by s simply changing the daily habits. 
what you're eating, how you're moving, how you're exercising, how you're breathing, even how you hold your body. A marriage is no different. A relationship is no different. We are not asking you in this book to completely change who you are. We're not showing you how to do something huge, sweeping, and dramatic in your life. No, no. These are simple things you can do every day because the greatest changes in your life happen as the result of very simple things that you can do every day. You know, great volumes of Shakespeare are composed of individual letters and words. <laughs> and these, what we call these five secrets to lasting love, they're really simply five daily habits. They are the words that you can use to write a whole new chapter in your marriage. And it is far easier than it may seem as you stand at the foot of the mountain. Well said. Five daily habits can change your relationship, your marriage, and make a measurable difference in your life and help your relationship go higher and higher. So thank you to both of you for writing this book. You've been dreaming about it for a while, but you got there. I think it's because you've been busy. And I think that the fact that you waited to put this in writing is beneficial to all of us because there's a rich tapestry that's woven in there, both of observations of experience of science and of a great story that keeps you turning the pages to see what happens in both of the stories at the same time. So thank you very much for joining us on Aim Higher. I encourage everybody to read this book, The Go-Giver Marriage. And it's not just if you're starting out, it's really any time because you will learn these five habits that become part of your daily life and it will change your relationship. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.